I invite you to make your way to Ephesians chapter 4. Our text today is going to be verse 11 through 16. In a message entitled, Maturity in the Fullness of Christ. For the past uh, couple of weeks, we have been focusing on the importance of a multi-generational church. What that looks like, why it's important, how we can be faithful in it. So far, we've considered both children and youth in our focus on the multi-generational church. And today, we're going to be focusing on adults broadly, but then I also want to come back with a closing message in this series with a particular focus on senior adults and uh, how God uses senior adults in the life of the church and their significance to it. Now, you might remember that we, as we've been talking about a multi-generational church, have focused on the fact that a multi-generational church includes each generation being ministered to appropriately based on their age and their stage of life, as well as the needs that come along specifically with those, but also interacting with and serving across generations so that one generation is not isolated from another or one valued more than another. Are you growing as a Christian? That's going to be our primary focus today as we think about spiritual maturity uh, from an adult perspective and our growth in Christ. Are you progressing toward who God wants you to be? That's a personal question. But in order for us to answer this question, we need to identify what spiritual maturity is. When we talk about spiritual maturity, we're basically talking about full development of our faith. We're talking about conformity to the image of Jesus. So if you want a summary of what it is, it's Christ-likeness. It goes back to our entire emphasis on conformity to the image of Jesus. Are we growing in those things so that we're becoming more like him? We're going to think about spiritual maturity today, not only at a personal level, but also collectively as the body of Christ, as we're serving together in a multi-generational setting, and we realize that there are no shortcuts. Spiritual maturity takes time. Now, depending on what soil you're growing a garden in and what the climate is and a number of other factors, it takes somewhere around 85 days to grow tomatoes, give or take, depending on where you are. It takes about 120 days to grow potatoes successfully. Uh, It takes 105 days to grow corn, less if you're in a warmer place uh, than that. But all of those are dependent on the particular conditions. Trees, however, are a totally different story. You can't grow trees as counted by days. You grow trees as counted by years. Below the equator, for example, a tree might reach full maturity somewhere in the 10 to 20 year range, depending on what type of tree it is. Or if you're in Canada, it can take 80 to 120 years, again, depending on the variety of the tree. I'm told that giant sequoias can reach full growth somewhere between 500 and 700 years. And growth towards spiritual maturity is a whole lot more like growing trees than it is growing vegetables. It takes time proportionate to our lives. It's not instant. It's not easy. There are no shortcuts, but it is worth it. So I want to pick up reading here in Ephesians chapter 4 
in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. I have two goals for the message today. The first is to help us understand how we can identify spiritual maturity, what are the evidences of it, and the second goal is to practically understand how we can grow towards spiritual maturity, both as individuals and then collectively in the body of Christ. For a short time at the end of his second missionary journey, And then for uh, more than two years on his third missionary journey, Paul served the church at Ephesus. He wrote this letter somewhere around 60 AD, 61 maybe, while in prison in Rome. And he structures it in a very distinct way. The first three chapters really lay the foundation and discuss the grace of God in Christ Jesus. What God has done from eternity past, and then all that God has done for us. He takes the last three chapters to teach and remind the church how to live practically, reminding us of our heavenly calling. And he tells us that we are essentially to walk worthy, not so that God will love us. We're to walk worthy instead because God loves us. Who we are in Jesus, what God has done on our behalf by his grace. We are to walk worthy in light of that, growing towards spiritual maturity. Now you'll notice here that he mentions several spiritual giftings and roles of leaders. He mentions, first of all, the apostles who were special representatives of God's work. God used them to establish the New Testament church. Today, if we use the word apostle or more appropriately apostolic, We're thinking about someone who lives sent, a sent one, um, who represents God in the world more than in that formal role that they had in the early church, in the establishment of the New Testament church. When we think of prophets, we're thinking of people who spoke with the authority of God to warn and to guide God's people. So today, if we use the word prophet or more appropriately, prophetic speaking of people who are forth-telling the word of God, We're thinking of people who are faithful in proclaiming the word in a bold sense and declaring it in a way that people can understand it, and sometimes that includes uh, judgment as well. And then the evangelists are specially gifted to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. This is not saying that because there are people who are gifted in that way, in the role of the evangelist, that we don't have the responsibility of evangelism. It's simply saying that there are people who God has blessed in that regard for the building up of the church. 
And then the pastor teacher, I think, is one office with two descriptive titles who shepherd the flock of God through caring for the flock and teaching them the word of God. So in summary, we might think about it in this way. The leadership of the church equips the saints to do the work of the ministry, that's service in the body of Christ, so that the body of Christ, the church, can be built up. And the primary means of equipping is through the word of God so that the people of God are equipped for every good work. So what are the evidences of spiritual maturity? I told you that was going to be in part my goal for today. So what are the evidences of spiritual maturity? Well, first, spiritual maturity is evidenced by unity. It's evidenced by unity. In verse 13, he says, until we all reach unity in the faith. Paul does not demand organizational unity based on a particular structure, but rather spiritual unity based on a common faith. And spiritual unity based on a common faith is going to influence organizational unity. Now, unfortunately, a lot of churches are uh, sometimes characterized by division and differences and disagreements more than they are unity. But verse 13 speaks of reaching unity or until we attain unity. It's already been accomplished in a sense because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, We are already one in Christ Jesus by his atoning blood. But even though it has already been accomplished for us, we're told that we are to grow toward it. And what unity in the faith does is it brings people together in the church around a common purpose, which we've been called to. And in this, we're still able to approach things from our own unique giftings that God has given us. And then we use those unique giftings And we contribute into the body of Christ for the unity of the body. Now let's note what this spiritual unity is based on. It's based on our convictions about Christ. Because he speaks specifically of unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. So, So it's these common convictions that we have about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Spiritual unity is also based on our confidence in Christ. Because we're not just believing a set of facts about him, but we are following him as his disciples. And spiritual unity is based on our care for one another. We're coming together because we're about a greater mission than ourselves. We're setting ourselves on that solid foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone. And then we're building that unity out as we work together in the body of Christ. Now, I want to back up just for a moment to the first part of Ephesians chapter 4 because there's a little bit more here, I think, that helps us uh, really understand the progression of what Paul is teaching in uh, verse 13, for example. Back in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 through verse 3, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit is the focus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He moves us to faith in Jesus. We are unified in Him. 
So the people who build unity in the church are people who live with humility and gentleness. They're the people who live with a spiritual meekness about them. Now, while these were viewed as virtues in Paul's day, Greek writing often viewed them as weaknesses. So when he presents these as the pathway to unity in Christ, he's saying something that is quite countercultural. But he's telling us that we can live with humility, and that builds up the unity in the church. Now, how do you get humility? You get it by a proper understanding of who you are in light of who God is. When we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we're saying something about him, but we're also saying something about ourselves. And when we see the majesty of God, we can understand who we are in light of that. Can you see what God can see? No. Can you know what God can know? Only what he shares with you. Can you do what God can do in his power? And the answer to that, of course, is also no. When we see that and we understand who God is and we exalt him for who he is, then that's going to make us humble and gentle. It's going to be a position of meekness as we serve him. I think also the people who build unity, according to those first three verses in Ephesians 4, are people who live with patience. They're long-tempered. Uh, prideful people are not patient people. The more highly you think of yourself, then the more you're going to demand of the people around you. But unity encourages you in your patience, and patience builds the unity. So you understand how he's moving now, not just from theory to practice. He's saying, listen, this is what the church ought to look like. You ought to be growing toward and attaining and building in that unity. And here's how you're supposed to do it. And unity also develops when we bear with one another in love. And I think this is a wonderful way to say it because the counsel is not that any of us are without fault. It is in spite of our individual uniqueness. So it's a nice way of saying this. You can put up with each other in love. Even if you're different, even if you have different ideas about things that, that are not essential, even if you come from a different perspective, a different experience, you can bear with one another in love. And that's what builds up unity in the body of Christ. And God brings people together with significant differences. And yet there's unity in the body. And I think a person with humility and gentleness can live with patience and bear with others in love. It's interesting how this works out in the life of the church and the inner working of different people to accomplish a common goal. I read a, an interesting story, a true story, about uh, a team called the Boys in the Boat. You might have read about it. It's about a 1936 University of Washington crew rowing team. They went from backwater obscurity to a gold medal at the Berlin Olympics. You can find it on YouTube. There's some P PBS documentaries on it on YouTube, and, and you can also find uh, the book on uh, the topic as well. 
But these guys went up against the Germans who were absolutely expected to win. The Germans won five gold medals and one silver medal in six races leading up to the grand finale. And yet here was this group from Washington who had been built from boys that had come from farms and logging towns and shipyards. They were not blue bloods. They were not expected to do any good in that that particular race. They had come from lower middle-class families and struggled through high school and in uh, school through the midst of the Great Depression and the years that followed. They were pretty much a ragtag team, but what set them apart was their unity in the midst of their differences. The writer of the particular book that I'm referencing about this team was Daniel James Brown. And he explained how individuals who had different statures and physiques and personalities made it happen. He said it ended up when the race came that they drew the absolute worst lane on the course due to the weather conditions. This was such an intense and anticipated race that there were millions of people following on the radio. One of the rowers had been ill for several days leading up to the particular race. And yet when it was over, they were able to come from behind and they won by the slimmest of margins. And here's what Brown writes in part. He says, races are won by crews and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up, overtly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are good blends of personalities, someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking, and somehow this must all mesh. But then here's what he says, it is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. A church is very similar to that. If everybody's trying to do the same thing, or we're not working together toward that common goal, we're not going to be faithful. We're not going to be successful. But then God beautifully brings together these people from unique backgrounds, and and it is a wonderful thing to watch happen when God does it, because spiritual maturity is evidenced by unity. And I would say to grow in maturity in the fullness of Christ, unity is needed. And we are by no means perfect as a church. But we have been blessed with unity in the Spirit. And one of the reasons we have been so blessed by unity in the Spirit is we have dealt with things that come up proactively rather than reactively. And as we have dealt with those things through the years, it has helped us maintain a focus on the main thing. And that's what's kept us moving forward. And a major part of what we do in our adult ministries at Cross Lanes Baptist Church is about growing the unity of the church. As we're coming together as a common uh, body of Christ in the faith, we're able to come together in Christ and build up that unity. So I'd ask you, does your attitude, does your life, and do your relationships in the church contribute to the unity of the body?
because you are growing in maturity in Christ. Second, spiritual maturity is evidenced by stability. It's evidenced by stability. Now let's look at verse 14 and verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 4. For Paul, doctrinal discernment was central to the focus of spiritual maturity in the church. You can't just believe what you want to believe. You have to understand and hold to these core beliefs if we're going to be living out a common faith. Now, when he uses the the reference here, little children, he's referencing immaturity. And if you are spiritually immature, you are prone to be deceived. And we all know that children may lack the ability to discern. They may not have careful judgment as they're thinking through things. Children can sometimes act more impulsively than they do carefully and cautiously. And the reference to being tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching is also a reference to instability. It's from the same wording that is used to describe the stormy sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 8 when it speaks of the raging of the water. And there are different kinds of teaching that stand against the unity of the faith and actually attack the truth of God's word. And the Bible has warnings again and again about false teachers. There are warnings about false Christ and there are warnings about uh, false prophets who will deceive many. And they disguise themselves as angels of light and servants of righteousness. So they sound good and they might look good and they might be appealing. But the Bible warns us it's not about what they look like or what they sound like. It's about the heart of what they're teaching and whether or not we're being faithful in that and being able to recognize what might lead us astray. Jude, in speaking of false teachers, wrote this in verse 12 and 13. He said, these people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. He said, indeed, it might almost be said that the New Testament came into being in order to warn Christian people to beware of the terrible ever-present danger of being led astray by false teaching concerning our Lord himself and his great salvation. So what are these waves and winds of false teaching that are identified here? I think today, in a modern-day application, they are the worldly philosophy. They represent the worldly philosophy that seeks to undermine biblical truth. So we have the wisdom of the world. We have the philosophy of the world that is contrary to the wisdom of God and to the philosophy of God and what God teaches in his word. And these things use human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Cleverness or craftiness is also used of Satan deceiving Eve. The techniques of deceit indicate here that there is a deliberate plan. This is not a haphazard approach. This is not an accidental attack on truth. This is an attack to the heart of truth. 
And the words referred to, to gamesters who would use false dice uh, that uh, would always throw one kind of number so that those playing against them would not win. It's like if you've ever been to a big city and you see one of those games going on on the street, stay away from it, you're going to lose. It's like going to the, to the county fair and they've got the game set up and they're rigged. I mean, you're going to lose. And it's the same way. They, they'll let somebody win occasionally to make it look like you can win, but everybody else is losing and they're making more money than they can count from it. And here he's saying, don't be drawn in by those things because you're going to lose. And the antidote to this is the Spirit of God guiding us in the Word of God. That's the antidote to the whole thing. It's really interesting how Christians say they believe that the Bible is God's Word, but many don't seem to be reading it. I don't know where you fall into this, but one study in recent years showed that only 45% of people who attend church regularly read the Bible more than once a week. 45% of people who attend church regularly say that they read the Bible on their own more than once a week. Over 40% say that they read it once or twice a month. And listen to this. Almost one in five churchgoers say that they never read the Bible. Now, I'm just going to tell you what follows here. If you don't read it, you don't know it. You're not going to have a defense. So a major part of what we're doing in our adult ministries at Cross Saints Baptist Church is to focus on God's Word. That's what we're doing in Sunday morning worship. That's what we're doing in our Bible fellowship groups. That's what we're doing when we're in our discipleship groups and in our ministries is to teach the truth of God's Word because that's central to the whole thing. And we want you not only just to hear it when we come together like this, but we want to help you know how to study it on your own as well so that you can live as a disciple of Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about worship. We want to develop personal worshipers so that you have a hunger yourself for your devotion with God. You have a hunger for time in the Word. And I'd ask you, are you spiritually stable right now because you have an intentional focus in your life on the Word of God? When you know it and you live it, it's going to impact how you relate in God's family. It's going to impact how you speak the truth in love and how you grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Spiritual maturity is evidenced by stability. And I believe that churches who focus on the word, teach the word, and encourage their people to live the word are going to be the most stable churches. We, we don't want to experience a lot of drama. We don't want to experience instability. We don't want to experience uh, unpredictability if we can help it. We want to be faithful, steadily moving along, stable in the things of God. And we want your life to be stable in the truth. The third evidence is that spiritual maturity is evidenced by ministry. Look again at verse 11. He references the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. I always say, you know why they call it the work of the ministry? Because it's work. A lot of people don't like that. It takes effort. It takes commitment. 
It takes resolve. It takes a willingness to say yes to what God wants you to do. God didn't gift you spiritually so that you could do nothing. He gifted you spiritually for the work of the ministry. And the beauty of this is that God has graciously equipped believers in the church to to lead the church and then for the church to be equipped. Now this idea of equipping is the same idea of putting right or to put something right. So we might say that it's the same word that was used, for example, of the setting of broken bones or mending nets. And it's important that we as the body of Christ be equipped for the work of the ministry. Now let me illustrate this. Uh, Most all of you at one time or the other have probably watched part or all of an auto race, uh, whether it be the NASCAR type or open wheel. Uh, I'm not particularly a an expert or a fan of, of either. I can enjoy watching like the last part of a race. That's the most exciting part to me. I, I, but I know some of you are all in on it and you enjoy it and you love it and that's all good. But in less time than it takes for most of us to put on our seatbelt and adjust the mirror before we go somewhere, a crew can change tires, fill the gas, give the driver a drink, and make vital adjustments to the car mechanically, and it happens so quickly and so efficiently. Why? Because every crew member knows their job, and they do it right. That's why. They're working together. Everybody has a function. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing if it goes right. And Max Helton said, imagine all the people it takes to put on a race. He said, what if they all wanted to drive? He said, it'd be chaos. It'd be the same with the crew. What if everybody wanted to change tires and nobody wanted to fill the gas tank up? The car wouldn't have a very long ride because one job is as important as the other. And for the body of Christ, if we all want to do the same thing, we can't function. And one of the reasons sometimes that people are drawn towards certain things is not because necessarily they're uh, gifted in that, but because they think it's more prominent or it gets more attention or it's more valuable. But if we're in humility before the Lord, we're going to say we all matter. It's every part of the body. It's that, it's that 1 Corinthians 12 mentality that every single part of the body matters. And for the body to function in a healthy way, every part has to be carrying out the function that it was intended for. Now here's an important note here on this point. The leaders are not called to do all of the work of the ministry in the body of Christ. We're called to serve by example and to be willing to do anything. But that's not how God designed his church. That would be unhealthy if we attempted that approach. And I think sometimes there are a number of reasons why uh, leaders, not just pastoral leaders, but other leaders in the church, uh, sometimes try to do the work of the ministry themselves. Uh, Let's just face it, sometimes people like to be the center of attention. Uh, Sometimes people think that other people can't do stuff as good as they can do it, so therefore they don't trust them to do it and give them the responsibility. Uh, Some people just have control issues. They just like telling people what to do and don't like to lead by example. And then sometimes uh, people need to be needed because they're insecure. 
and they're afraid if they teach someone else to do something or they give someone else, if they equip someone else to do something in a church, that they might lose their role. And we know none of these are healthy or spiritual reasons at all. So what should leaders be doing? Raising up others and equipping them to do the work of the ministry. So how do we know that? Jesus modeled it. Paul modeled it. It's essential for the Great Commission. If the mission of the church is going to carry forward, we have to see the value of the entire body of Christ, everybody who's fulfilling a function, whether or not it's out front or or if it's in the background. And it's so important that Jesus be at the center of the church. And this is why building a culture of disciples and a culture of making disciples is so important. It is non-negotiable. And he says in verse 16, From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Now it's interesting that these verses actually connect back to verse 7, where Paul focuses on how each of us have spiritual gifts to be used. Now grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here's what this means. Every individual, every part of the church has something to contribute. Every part of the body of Christ has a function to perform. And when all the parts work together, the body functions in a healthy way. And when he speaks of being fitted together or knit together, it implies that we have to be close together in order to grow together. And fitted together is also used in chapter 2 and verse 21 when it speaks of the stones and the temple being joined together. So to fit the stones together, the mason would chip off the, the rough edges. And that's what God does in us is he chips off our rough edges spiritually so that we can fit together and that the whole building can be built up. That's the picture of God's church. And the growth of the body is promoted for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each part. So a major part of what we do in our ministries, in our adult ministries at Cross Saints Baptist Church, and a major part of what we want to do is to equip people for the work of the ministry and provide opportunities for you to use your spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. We, we want there to be These clear pathways where you can say, hey, I know that God called me, God saved me, God gifted me. I know that I want to be a part of his work in the local body. And here's a pathway for me to do that. Here's a way that I can onboard and be useful. And I'm welcomed in doing that. Not only am I welcomed in doing that, but I'm encouraged in doing that. And I think sometimes in churches... Uh, The people who do what they do, who carry the weight, who carry the load, who carry the mission forward and the ministry forward, sometimes they just get busy and they're, they're just active. They're doing what they know they're supposed to be doing, but they're not thinking, how are other people being equipped through my service in order that they could use their spiritual gifts? And this is how we want you to be thinking. If you're a, you're a Bible fellowship teacher, leader, you're serving in one of our other ministry team areas and You're carrying out an important function. I don't want you to be thinking, this ends here with me. I want you to be thinking, 
how could I be bringing someone else alongside of me who could help me and then eventually assume more responsibility so that they can use their giftings? And that's the way that the culture grows. That's the way the, the body grows as we work together. And I think this is more important than ever. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that uh, the church landscape in America is changing faster than ever. The last two or three years have accelerated that. Uh, we, we might see it as the cause, but I think it's actually probably more of the cause being revealed than it is causing it, what we've gone through. But a recent survey showed that more than 75% of churches saw significant decline in in-person attendance coming through the pandemic. 35% of churches saw attendance drop between a third and a half. 12% of churches declined during that time frame by more than 50%. And we're not talking about just during the heart of it. We're talking about even on the rebound. These are statistics that have held true. Yet people's needs, and this is something we've also seen in the church, that while uh, participation patterns have and, and are changing, people's needs have gone up almost exponentially. And, and it's hard to make that connection and really understand why, but, it, but I can tell you that's true. And that has put more pressure on church ministries. The Hartford Institute did a study that showed that in 2019, this is the year before the pandemic, 40% of church members were actively serving as volunteers, according to the Hartford Institute. By the fall of 2021, that number was down to 15% of people actively serving in churches. Now, I think that'll come back up steadily in, in, across the board in churches, but it shows you why what I'm talking to you about today is so incredibly important. Because we're being reminded of who we are, reminded of what God's called us to do, remind us, uh, reminded of the mission God has us on, and whether or not we're faithfully fulfilling it. So I ask you today, are you being equipped to use your spiritual gifts for health and growth in the body of Christ? Spiritual maturity is evidenced by ministry. Now, what is the ultimate goal of all this? I give you this in closing. It is until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That you might be presented complete in Christ Jesus. So the metaphor is continued of the parts of a human body receiving nourishment and growing up. That's the ultimate goal. Conformity to the image of Jesus, Christ-likeness, and other people being brought to Christ and also growing into that Christ-likeness. There's an old story that's told about an accomplished artist who was uh, observed applying the finishing touches to a bronze sculpture. He was slowly but continuously filing and scraping and polishing every little surface on his masterpiece. An observer said, when will it be done? Never came the reply. I just keep working and working until they come and they take it away. Something similar could be said about the children of God. We are saved by grace. 
and the good work that God has started in us will not be finished until one day we are in his presence. It's never done. It's not as though we say that we're at a point now that we are spiritually mature, that God's work in us is complete. No, I know I'm a work in progress, and I know that there's a whole lot of work that needs to take place in my life spiritually, and you're the same. So are you hungry for that? Are you, are you leaning into it? Are you desiring the word and praying and asking God on a daily basis to, to refine you and to shape you and to mold you and to make you more like Jesus? That's what we want to be the culture of this church, is that it's all of grace. But as we rest in that grace, we're saying, Lord, would you do it? Would you do a work in us so that we could be more like our Savior. How do we grow towards spiritual maturity? This is how. Together, in the Word, serving Jesus in His church. Let me repeat that. Together, in the Word, serving Jesus in His church. That's the kind of church we want to be. More importantly, that's the kind of disciple we want to be of the Lord. Spire heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are spiritually today. Maybe you're at a point that you've not yet even met Christ. If you were honest, you'd have to say, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. I've not repented of my sins and believed in the gospel and followed Jesus. Today would be a good day to, to start that journey of faith. It would be a good day to be forgiven and to be in right standing with God. But I know many of you, most of you, would say, I, 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 yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of his. All that I've said today has not been uh, to criticize you if you're not growing or if you're not serving or... You know you're not where you need to be. It is all about encouraging you to know that you have a heavenly father who loved you enough to save you by his grace. He's sustaining your life right now by his grace. And wherever you are in your life, you can contribute to God's work through your prayers, through your faithfulness, and through serving as God gives you opportunities. Maybe for some of you today, you just need to say, Lord, help me to know where I am spiritually so that I can grow where I need to be. And just take that first step and say, Lord, I, I don't want to be static. I don't want to try to be stuck in neutral. I want to grow. I want to know you more and more. Father, we thank you today that we can call you our Father through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I thank you that we are works in progress. We are not yet what we will be, but we are not what we were. And I thank you today that we can stand in the righteousness of Jesus. And in that righteousness, we can find our giftings and our purpose and live our lives faithfully for you. Thank you, Father, for the unity of this church. We're imperfect people serving a perfect God. But you have maintained unity even through, at times, stormy waters. And you've given us that stability that we need. 
And we're thankful for that. Lord, it's only by your good hand. And we want to minister and serve and carry out the mission you've called us to so that we would be more like Jesus. We give this time of closure and response over to you if there are decisions that need to be made or steps of faith that need to be taken that people would respond to you and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.